So hi folks, and welcome to the latest episode of Naturally Adventurous. I'm Ken Behrens, and as always, I'm joined by Charlie Hess. And um, we've left people in a little bit of suspense about what we're going to talk about this week, mainly due to lack of planning on our part. But uh, <laughs> in the last five minutes, we've basically, well, okay, maybe 15 minutes, we've settled on, we're going to do Charlie's top three lifetime birding experiences. Pretty rarefied territory. Pretty exciting stuff. Pretty gripping stuff. I've only seen one out of the three. Looking forward to Charlie's stories. Before we get into it, we will mention again our virtual birding tours. Uh, please check those out. If you Google virtual birding tours on Google, it's normally the top hit. It's on the Tropical Birding webpage. And Charlie and I are also quite excited about the School of Birding. We've uh, done a lot of work on our School of Birding this week, and I think we'll go online next week. We'll go live with School of Birding with a bunch of tutorials uh, that can help you improve as a birder, traveler, or a photographer. Anything else we need to mention? I think we're good. Regarding the top 10 bird sightings, we have had quite a few listeners have, have told us how many out of the ones we've mentioned they've seen which has been quite fun so uh, if you've seen any of these birds do let us know if you've got any uh, interesting stories about them too yeah no one that has contacted me has seen all of them so far so you're doing pretty well charlie <laughs> but if, if any of our listeners have seen all of charlie's top 10 I, we would be very interested to know but yeah it's quite an accomplishment some of these are pretty tough birds scattered all around the world yeah, we'll maybe review the lists on the notes for the podcast. Yep, good idea. And also we're going to be having a little gallery of photos on Ken's uh, website and there'll also be the link for that on there. So in the episode description there will be a link to that gallery and you can also find that on my website on the Naturally Adventurous page there. So let's get into it. Charlie's top three lifetime birding experiences. Um, number three is Philippine Eagle in the Philippines. Um, this, Funnily this, enough. <laughs> yeah. This is a gripping one because not only uh, have I not seen it, well, I haven't been to the Philippines, but I, I just have really bad luck with these big eagles. I still haven't seen a, a harpy eagle. So go on, grip me off. The, <laughs> the, there is a, a lot of discussion often about which is the biggest eagle. Eagles are quite sort of spectacular birds and people often want to see like the biggest eagle in the world. And there's actually a few contenders for this. There's the, the Harpy Eagle in um, Central and South America. There's the Stellar Sea Eagle in sort of Northeast Asia. And then the Philippine Eagle. The Philippine Eagle is actually the longest, and I think it has the largest wing area, is what I was reading. Largest wing area. I guess it has fairly short wings because it's a forest bird. It does actually soar a bit, eh? It does uh, actually soar really? more than some of those other ones, yeah. So I think the, the Harpy and the Stellar Sea Eagles, they are like very bulky, very heavy birds. But this one, I think, is a little bit longer. So it is, by some uh, measurements, the uh, the largest eagle in the world. Where do the uh, African eagles, how do they stack up the uh, Marshall and African crowned? Big beasts. They're big, but I think a bit smaller than these real big boys, the heavyweights. There have been some other names for this bird. It's called the, just the Philippine eagle now. It has been known as a monkey-eating eagle or Philippine monkey-eating eagle, and uh, it does actually eat monkeys, but not solely monkeys. Um, does take birds, takes hornbills sometimes, takes uh, flying lemurs, it baby takes, rhinos. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, pretty spectacular bird. Another name for it is called the Haribon, and this is from Filipino, from the Filipino language. Ibon means bird, and uh, Haribon means king of the birds, which is also a pretty cool name. And there's also a, a bird conservation organization in the Philippines called the Haribon Foundation, which is well worth looking into. So like I say, it is a critically endangered bird. I think there's probably less than 400 individuals now, and they're very wow. widely spread out. Um, the Philippines has got some of the worst environmental destruction in Asia. It's in a really bad way. Um, big population pressure on habitats so yeah and also they're they're persecuted they can be shot their nests can be robbed yeah so they're under real pressure do they take domestic animals at all or do people persecute them because they eat their goats and that sort of thing Nah, not really these are really confined as far as i'm aware to good quality forest a big expanses of, of, of primary forest so that you don't really see them coming out of the forest much as far as I'm aware. In Madagascar, it's a big problem with fusas. Fusas just love, you know, killing chickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're also confined yeah. to pristine forests, but they, I guess at night they range out pretty widely. They come so. out. Anyway, so the story starts about just under 20 years ago. I, I was working in Asia and I, I had a few months off between jobs and I had the opportunity to go to the Philippines and do some bird surveys for uh, an NGO there called CCC, the Coral Cay Foundation, which is a really fantastic uh, NGO. And I did some bird surveys and I, I did some sort of uh, training and stuff of, um, of locals and sort of census techniques and stuff like that. And I was actually in the, the Visayas, which is in the sort of the Middle Islands, and there weren't any Philippine eagles left there. Um, but while I was there, I met a guy called Tim Fisher, who was a real birding legend. He was the author of the book and he was a real expat birder in the Philippines. You know, he was, he, he was, <laughs> they don't make him like him anymore. You know, they, he was like a uh, very posh sounding. He sounded like he should have been living a hundred years ago. You know? <laughs> yeah, hello, we're going to look for some birds. <laughs> so, so he, he turned up at this place where I was doing surveys and yeah, we went out birding together, became friends. I met him Later on, and we did some more birding uh, in Manila and got to know him quite well. He actually passed away a few years ago, very sadly. And this was, imagine 20 years ago, the, the emails and internet, it was, you know, it was, it was there, but it was sort of limited. You know, you'd have to really look hard to find a place to, where you could send an email. Anyway, so I, I was doing surveys in this forest and I was then moving down to another place and I just had a chance to check my email and I, I think I decided not to bother. I thought, oh, it's fine. I'll just go to this other place. And I, I didn't, I, if I'd have checked my email then, I would have got an email from him inviting me along on a birding trip to go and see the Philippine Eagle. Ouch. And instead, I, yeah, <laughs> instead I went to this little remote island, which was lovely. And I spent two or three weeks there doing some bird surveys and I came back and got the email. And by then it was too late. I was on my way back home. So I missed this amazing opportunity to go with, you know, the most famous birder in the Philippines at the time. To look for the best bird. Yeah, so I, that was kind of annoying. And then I left the Philippines, and I didn't go back for, let's see, I think 16 years. And this was just a real thought in my side. I was like, oh, no, why didn't I just check my email? <laughs> anyway, so I, I started working at Tropical Birding, and I was doing African tours and Asian tours, and I started, you know, guiding all over. And... Tropical Birding had done some tours to the Philippines, but it wasn't a regular destination. But we had a few 
regular clients that were quite keen to go there. So in the end, this was in 2017, we managed to get together three diehard tropical birding um, regular clients, and they were very keen to go. So we put together this tour, and uh, I, I luckily got to guide this thing. So I, this was now my next shot at going to see the bird. So the place where most people see it is on the, the largest island in the south of the Philippines. The Philippines is like 7,000 islands, but the largest island in the south is called Mindanao. And it's actually a mountain bird, eh? So there's this big mountain there called Kittenglad, Mount Kittenglad, and they've got some fantastic birds there. It's full of endemics and, you know, it's just a real birding paradise. But it's actually quite difficult to get up to, and the accommodation is very, very rustic. So the three folks that I was with, they were, you know, they were in decent shape, but, you know, they were senior birders, and they were willing to sort of rough it. So we got dropped off by our driver at the bottom of this mountain, and it should have been about a two-hour fast hike up but it took us longer we were stopping for birding and it was tough it it had been raining it was muddy it was slidey and we got up there to this ramshackled old house just really in bad shape and there was some tents set up there and the house was in such bad shape that everybody decided to go for a tent instead of going in the house (laughs) that's pretty grim (laughs) but we were just surrounded by forest we were sort of halfway up the mountain a lot of the birding was a little further up but it made a really nice base Incidentally, on one of my virtual tours, virtual tour of the Philippines, I go into a lot of detail and show videos and and photos uh, from the Philippines. So please do go and check that out. But anyway, we we got there and we were told when we were there, the local guide told us that there had been a nest. We had heard that there was a nest. We were going to go to a nest and look at a bird on the nest and it was all going to be a, you know, a slam dunk. The nest had been abandoned. So that was a big blow, you know, having waited 16 years to see this. <laughs> and you think it's uh, almost guaranteed yeah. and then, ouch. And then it's not. A lot of really big bulky eagles, they don't really soar much. But this is this does occasionally soar. But of course, you know, you need to have some thermals. You need to have some good weather. And it was kind of wet and cloudy. And it wasn't your sort of raptor soaring weather. But there was a, there was an overlook. And it was, it was another pretty brutal hike up. And we were exhausted from... From getting up and it was another brutal slippery muddy hike up to this viewpoint and we went up there in the early morning and we just stayed there all day like, i think we sat there they had some like uh, like a bench and it's just beautiful view over the over the mountain and we sat there for eight hours nothing Oof. it was sort of drizzly and it stopped and it kind of warmed up a little bit and it just seemed like you know the sun might almost come out and then it started raining again and it was just like oh no and I think we actually took a, a hike up, further up from there again, you know, another 30, 40 minutes hike up to the nest. And we looked at the nest and we could see an egg there. The one huge egg on this nest had been how could you see the? I think. How could you see the egg? Was it kind of an so, open? So um, the nest was on the other side of a, like a steep valley. And we had this little overlook and we were looking over and you could see in the nest and there you could see the uh, the abandoned nest with a single egg there. <laughs> That's crazy. So I guess it's uh, yeah. it's getting kind of insulting at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it wasn't there. So we went back down to the, the viewpoint. Eight hours, nothing. Went back down. We saw some bird, great birds on the way up, great birds on the way down, but no eagle. We had three nights up there, so two full days. And we went up the next morning again very dutifully, sat there, started our vigil. And one hour, two hours, same raining, and then it eased off a little bit, and then more rain, and oh, it was just, it was just miserable. 
And then, the, you know, every as hour, every hour went by, it was just the chance of us seeing this thing again was just, oh, no. And then the, I think the second full day, I think also, we didn't see it. Oof. And it was like, this is not happening. This is really not, not happening. Anyway, I think on the third day, we maybe had two or three hours. And, we, and we'd, we hadn't seen it on two full days of sitting and scanning. By this point, I had memorized every single little branch on the whole <laughs> mountainside, just scanning all day long. And it was miserable. It's so hard to stay in sort of a good mental space under those circumstances. Oh. Like on the one hand, you know, you're very privileged to be there in the, in the first place. And this is all kind of a, a silly game. And, you know, there's people who are hungry in the world. And But then you really, really want to see that eagle. And, <laughs> you really uh, want to see it. And also, I mean, if, if we'd have seen the bird straight away, we would have hiked higher up the mountains and got a load of other high elevation endemics that we weren't going to see now because we've oh, been sat there. Oh, right, you know? you're losing other birds. We're losing other birds, you know? Anyway, we went up, I think we had, we, I can't remember exactly, we might have had two, three hours, and we went up there one hour, two hours, it's not happening. And then I pretty much resigned myself. And then this other local guy just comes sprinting down the hill. He says, they're on the nest! <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And I was like, oh, my God. And you have never <laughs> seen three senior birders move quicker. You know, they were sort of, t- they were taking their time walking up the mountain to get up to the campsite. They were re- they were gunning it. You've never seen 65-year-olds move so quickly. I'll tell you, it was amazing. And it was like, it's going to go by the time we get there. It's going to have gone. Oh, no, what are we going to do? And then we're going, going, going. And I'm, I'm sort of a little bit ahead. And we're trying to make sure that we, we keep this chain because we don't want anyone getting lost. And we're like, yep. come on, go on, go on. And we get there. And then and then, and then there's a scene in my head that I've seen so many times where the guide's like waving you. Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> he's kind of waving, he's beckoning. And I was like, it's going to fly. It's going to fly. You, you like, just feel just it in your bones. Get... Like, I know. It's... <laughs> you could just... You're going to see him drop his binoculars and his kind of crestfallen look come onto his face. Oh, no, it's just gone. And then I got there and he's pointing it out. And I'm like, no. And the guy speaks like pretty limited English. And he's like, oh, the tree, tree. And I'm like, come on. What tree? Describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Which tree? There's a million trees. Um, Anyway, he finally gets me on this bird and I see it. And I was like, and I just have this. Just sinking, just like exhaustion in my and I and I was like, I've got it, I've got it, and then I've got this quiet happiness inside me with these three sweating, avid senior birders all sort of like walking desperately towards me, and I'm like trying not to look happy yet. <laughs> yep, I've been there, and I'm like, you've been there, right? <laughs> and then um, right, and I'm getting in the scope, and I was like, okay, go. And then the first guy, get, he's sweating, he's like breathing and he can hardly keep his head straight because he's shaking so much and then he's, he's got it and he's like and then he says got it okay and I was like fantastic I pat him on the back the next one's coming up behind second position and he sort of moves out of the way they were really nice folks and they were always like cooperating and helping each other and he's out the way and help giving her a hand up and then the next lady comes in and it was like yep got it and then and then the other lady was a few minutes behind um, and then she she's coming she's coming and we'll and, and then they're sort of doing that thing of beckoning it's there come it's on there. come <laughs> on come on you can quickly do it. quickly slowly thought, slowly yeah and I thought what's going oh it's gonna fly and we, we, you know we're all gonna be like oh no I feel so sorry for it and she got there and she's shaking and she's looking and she's like she's like, I can't see it and I'm like no it's there look 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 and then she looks she's like 
okay, I've got it. And then finally, we, we could all, this, this like 17, this 16 year wait for me. And then this incredible physical challenge for these other folks. Just, and the whole, you know, that, that was the main reason for some of these guys for coming. Really? And then we all saw it and we all just collapsed in just exhaustion and happiness. And it was Relief. just like one of these ultimate birding experiences. I've had a lot of, you know, we've been describing a lot of these and a lot of the time we've been on our own and, and really, you know, going hard. But this, is, this was with clients and we all made it and we were all happy, equally as happy. Maybe I was even slightly happier than they were. Waited <laughs> you, such a you'd long missed time it before. It. It, it's a totally different oh, dynamic when you're guiding people as well. You feel responsible for them, and you also just desperately want everybody to see the bird because you, you know if yeah. two of the three people get it and one person misses it, it the dynamic is so tough because you feel so bad for that person and nobody can really gloat or even enjoy it that much. It's Oh, yeah. it's 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 terrible. It's one of the worst situations. The first prize is where everybody sees it, everybody gets a great yeah, look, absolutely. everybody's happy, and then that's what it's all about. This is a sort of real golden moment in <laughs> Yeah. Did they know you hadn't seen the bird at that point? Yeah, I think I think they did. I think I told them the story of me not getting to see it and whatever. So I think they knew that that one was was a lifer for me. So um, yeah. Anyway, that's my Philippine eagle story. <laughs> People usually get pretty excited about that when their guide is seeing a new bird and when they know it's an, a nemesis bird for you. And I mean, that, that probably made it even more fun for everybody. Yeah, they were. I think they were happy for me as well. You know, the Philippines has got a really bad rep as being a, just a miserable birding destination and just really, you know, super early, 3 a.m., getting up at 3 a.m. and walking in the rain all day and just climbing these mountains and staying in a little tent. and Shy birds. Like yep. um, so it's not all like that. I would say of all the tours and the extensions, about half of the stuff is actually like any other tour. You know, you're walking around along a road with a scope and it's nice birding. And we've actually decided to redesign our Philippine tours and do one called the Easy Philippines. So we keep those easy, nice birding as a main tour. And so now anybody can come along and get a whole bunch of uh, endemics without having to you know, endure these terrible physical hardships or really uncomfortable long days or whatever or terrible accommodations. So that's our new plan now. So if you, if you go ahead and, and check out my virtual tour, you'll see all about this easy Philippine tours that we've now designed. Yeah, I'm very keen to go. I I guess you were in the Philippines. I never had been that keen to visit, but now I'm uh, I'm I'm des- desperate to get there. I guess we're we're both probably desperate to go anywhere in the middle of this pandemic. But, uh, <laughs> That's you know. right. Hey, so do you know where the world's biggest raptor ever was found? Was it not New Zealand? Was it that one that ate moas? I think. So there was one in New Zealand and there was one in Madagascar. And I think the Madagascar right. one was probably a little bit bigger, but they were both massive. So the, the Malagasy one ate these 500-pound gorilla lemurs and the <laughs> elephant bird, which was the biggest bird that ever lived. So I, I guess it makes yeah, sense I mean, that it would have been a, even bigger than the New Zealand one if its, it's prey was just ridiculously huge. But uh, yeah. it, it, was, it, was, it was the size of an airplane, a small airplane. Those would have really just dwarf these these current giants yeah ah great story i i never heard that actually so that was that's another another good one (laughs) excellent so your next uh number two is okinawa rail 
which this bird was really off my radar until I watched your virtual tour of Okinawa. And man, it looks like a great place and such a cool bird. So love to hear the story. The weird thing is you look at a picture of it and we'll, we'll put a photo in the gallery so people can uh, see what it looks like. But it's just an incredible looking bird. It's like black with these white bands on it and these bright red bill and red legs. It's just, it's a gorgeous bird. And the thing that initially got me excited about what was it that it was only discovered it was only described to science in 1981 that amazes me it's incredible this is this isn't like some remote valley in new guinea or right or, or some, some mountain top or something it's just it's a fairly accessible island and it's not some little cryptic bird either that you know just has gone unnoticed this is a foot long Black with white bands on it with a bright red. But how on earth can something like that go unnoticed until 1981? I think its existence was confirmed in 78. And then finally they got a specimen in 81 and they described it. Some um, Japanese biologists. It's so weird. Uh, when there's a bu- several other endemics on Okinawa, right? When were those first described? You have any idea? I think they were earlier. There's like an Okinawan uh, woodpecker and a lot of other taxa, yeah. But I think they were earlier. But this one was quite late. They are secretive. They've got a really loud call. I mean, I think the locals knew it was there. Of course, yeah. But it wasn't new to humankind, you know, but it was just new to science. I'm sure there was a, they had a name for it even before it was described to science. The area it's found in is in the northern part of the main island of Okinawa. And again, I'll, do, I'll give my, um, my Okinawa virtual tour a plug here. It's not one that, that's been very popular with people because it's not a very well-known destination, but I do encourage you to, to check it out because it's a really interesting area. And the southern part of uh, Okinawa Island, so Okinawa was part of the US. They kept it after the Second World War and they oh, only really? gave it back to Japan, I think, yeah, and uh, I can't remember when it was, maybe the 70s or something like that. Huh. And still there's US bases there. And uh, yeah, a lot of Japanese are really not terribly happy with the, the US having a military presence in Japan. Okinawa only became part of Japan, I think, at you know, the end of the, the 19th century. And before that, it was a kingdom. It was a separate kingdom. And then it was sort of incorporated in, in Japan. So really? it's, a, it's got a very different culture. And I, I just, I, you know, I'm crazy about Japan, as many people know. And I'm even crazier about Okinawa. <laughs> it's, um, culturally, it's fascinating. I love the music there. The people are incredibly friendly. They've got a really cool language. It's not even a dialect. It's more, it's more like a language. You know, not, like people from the mainland in Japan wouldn't really understand it. They heard two old Okinawan men chatting. You know, it's really very distinct. But I was fascinated. It's got beautiful white sand beaches and crystal blue seas. It's a real paradise. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And I, I've been there six or seven times now. I just keep going back. I love it. Are, are the people not uh, Austronesian people? Like the people in tai, Taiwan and some of those other no, islands? No, they're not. They're so they, they are little... Japanese... Sort of East Asian. They, I, I, I don't know if that's closer to Japanese and Chinese, but they're certainly sort of East Asian. Um, they do look quite different. They, t- they, they tend to be a little bit shorter. They've got sort of rounder faces. They've got a different look to them than other Japanese people. I uh, just looked this up, and yeah, it is part of their language is part of the uh, the Japan Japonic language family. Interesting. So I moved to Japan in '98, and I think I did my first little trip down to Okinawa. In, I think it might have been 99. I was working as an English teacher there and I had a, some some time off and I think I took a boat down there, you know, and I was still a, a bit short of money, you know, um, so I didn't hire a car or anything. I, I, I took a bus up 
to the north of the island and I was camping and hiking around. But um, I didn't know at the time, but the best way to see it is to drive around along the roads in the early morning. Um, and sometimes they'll come out on the edge of the road along certain stretches, you know, if you know where to look. So now, you know, if I, you know, I can go and I can, I've got a good chance of showing them to people. And we do offer um, Okinawa as, a, as a, an extension to the Japan tour. But at the time, you know, I was just walking around the forest trying to look for these things. Um, and I spent I had three or four days looking for them. And I actually heard them quite close at one point. And I didn't see these things and I was desperate to see them. And that was back in 99. And I, I didn't get to actually see the bird until 2016, which was another 17-year wait. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of a theme here with, uh, with your top is, birds. There is a bit of a theme. I think these long waits really make it extra special For when sure. you do finally see the bird. So anyway, we finally got... Uh, some people, I think it was just one guy actually, decided uh, after one of the tours he wanted to go along to Okinawa and see this thing. So I, I went along there. I did a little recce beforehand. I, I was driving around. I found some good locations for it. And then I took this client and showed him it. And another thing is that you can often see them at night. They get very vocal just after dusk. They roost up in trees. They're not flightless. They're almost flightless. They really don't like flying. And one thing I saw driving around at dusk was I saw you get a lot of um, tree ferns there. And, and they often grow on a, a sort of 45-degree angle. And the, these rails will sort of walk up these little kind of ladders up into the trees oh, um, cool. along, these, along these tree fern trunks, which is quite cool. But I was driving around, and I heard this call, like, and it's like uh, really uh, loud. They've got one call, which is like a... It's like a Madagascar rail, it's like, kak, 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 kak. and then they've got this other kind of growling call, like, rah, rah. Um, and I heard this thing, and I shot around, and then I saw this thing just very close, roosting up in a tree, and it's it was a really special moment. I just spent so long, and I, re- I was so desperate to see this bird, and it's a very cool bird, and it was just a long time in coming. It was very special, and it was nice to show it to this other guy as well. It's interesting that it sounds like a, a rallus rail it's in the genus uh, galliralis like the barred rail that we saw in, in new guinea it's kind of similar to that and they've got this also like a kind of similar call that's to that. true yeah they don't sound that dissimilar from classic rails ah cool uh i'm i'm very keen to get to okinawa sounds sounds like an amazing place it's beautiful it's sub it's a sort of northern extent of the subtropical forest and it's so lush and it's got such a lot of very cool, and it's not just birds either. There's cool reptiles and amphibians and plants and mammals and all sorts of stuff. So it's a really nice place to visit. Beautiful ocean surrounding it. It looked like in your virtual tour, it's one of these kind of paradisical islands. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Uh, great. Well, I guess that brings on the big moment that uh, everyone's been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie's number one lifetime bird sighting. Uh, this one surprised me a little bit but then i guess you really like these endangered birds and this bird is critically endangered endangered. um, which is the helmeted hornbill so you really don't get much more critically endangered than this bird it's really people often say oh it's on the edge of extinction and you know there'll be like a small number but they're fairly stable this is a very small number and it's under real pressure so hornbills they often have these you know the very long bills and this big cask on top and it makes their head look really heavy. 
but actually it's all it's got like a sort of almost like a sort of honeycomb inside right like uh two cans two cans of the same deal they they look like their head must weigh about five pounds but if if you handle a specimen or or ringing them or something it's almost weightless and the thing about the helmeted hornbills i think it's the only hornbill that has a cask that's actually solid and it's red and it's known as red ivory it's one of these it's like rhino horn that's sort of worth more than it's weighed in gold you know it's um it's incredible and it's very popular in china to make these little uh little seals you know like a little name stamp and it's a real sort of um status thing you know, sign that you, yeah status symbol yeah um and it's really very sad but there's a huge amount of money for people to go poaching these critically endangered hornbills and then sort of taking this red ivory and selling it to very wealthy chinese businessmen so it's a really sad story and they're just on a downward spiral you know they're just everywhere they are they're under huge pressure i so i think uh, helmeted hornbills always a pretty low density bird um even compared with rhinoceros hornbill which is the same size but i, I believe mm. uh, rhinos feed on a lot more different fruits and that helmeted hornbills right. are more specific in the food that they eat if i'm remembering correctly so even some of the so the early accounts of people of, of european explorers in borneo they would see flocks of like hundreds of rhinoceros hornbills and and then quite a few uh, helmeted but i think helmeted was always a less common bird right so it's just naturally rare yeah yeah as i remember That's interesting so if you if you take a look at it um i think uh, ken will put a photo up in the in the gallery but it's it's very unusual it's got these very extended tail feathers it's got this really long tail it's a it's an incredible looking bird yeah so it's um it's it's got this sort of red cask it's a, a bit of a shorter bill and then it's got these weird sort of wattles and stuff around its face it's just um really bizarre looking now it to me it it has a dinosaur-esque look to it yeah. um which a lot of the coolest birds have that like the cassowary there's something very uh primitive and primeval about it anyway so the, the first time my first time in the range of this species was probably back in about 97 when i started traveling around um southeast asia i went to some um, areas where it was found and didn't see it and then as i traveled more and more i saw more and more um hornbill species and then this was always a one that you know was always in the book and that you know just didn't seem to be there and in the end it was like the only one left and i was like what's up with this bird and then and then they they were becoming you know all the time rarer and rarer due to poaching and then i think like one of my best chances was a couple of years ago in Borneo. So Ken's done a wonderful uh, virtual tour to Borneo, which I recommend, but he shows some footage of this bird and a a wonderful recording. So yeah, and I actually heard this bird there. So we were birding in the Denham Valley there. um, And I heard this kind of booming sound across the valley. And I was trying to get a view through the trees. And we spent hours looking for this bird. And then it just went silent and it had flown away and we missed it. We spent a couple of days and I was like, oh, I, I, you know, I was quite used to missing it by then. But, I, you know, I was still kind of frustrated. And then finally, a couple of years ago, I was um, I was doing a little trip with my family, with my wife, who also likes to bird. And my son, who, who was um, just starting getting into birding, he must have been about six years old at the time. And we went into this reserve in Peninsular Malaysia. And there was an overnight hide there. And we'd been there before, I think the previous year, looking for... Malayan tapirs, which is another mm. nemesis of mine. Have you seen that animal? I've seen the semi-tame ones. Ah, right. But 
Yeah, I guess they're a little bit dubious. I think that they were rescued <laughs> from uh, the wildlife yeah. trade and then released, but they're very it's fond of released. humans. So, um, yeah, I, I heard that in some of these overnight hides, there's sometimes a little clay licks or whatever, and, and you had a chance to see real wild tapirs. Uh, and I wasn't even going to look for the hornbill. We went in and we spent all evening and then we stayed the night there on this incredibly uncomfortable, these wooden planks with like a little thin sleeping bag and insects buzzing around. Us. It, wasn't, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't very comfortable. And we didn't see the tapir and we got up in the morning. And just as we were sort of packing up to go, I, I hear this booming sound just outside the blind. And I'm like, that rings a bell. And then it just it just dawned on me. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I ran out. I ran out. And there, was, and there was a clearing right there. And it was just calling very close. And then just a few minutes later, this thing flew across this clearing. And I got a wonderful view. And my wife and my son were with me as well. And then it flew back again. And we just got killer views, flight views of this incredibly rare bird and it was just so un unexpected you know it wasn't i wasn't even going looking for this and it was just such a happy moment it was so wonderful to to share it with my with my family as well was felix uh was he excited about that oh really excited and he's he's very into i think probably because his dad always goes on about it about um you know rarity and <laughs> critically endangered species yeah i wonder where he got that got... yeah so yeah, exactly <laughs> so he uh whenever he talks about some world bird who he says ah oh, i wonder if they've seen the helmeted horse or <laughs> kind of thing you know he, he loves this idea of you know having seen birds that other people haven't and oh having my. seen a rare bird that other people haven't so yeah i think he's uh, he's definitely got that from his old man <laughs> oh cool and they actually i forgot to mention that they, they were actually with me in okinawa i took them to okinawa and showed them the okinawa rails as well so they were super keen to see those as well so my uh, first encounter with helmeted hornbill was auditory only, but it was it was pretty spectacular. I was birding in peninsular Malaysia, and it was my first time in the region in Sundaland. So you know, I hadn't studied vocalizations or anything. Um, I, I just wanted to experience the environment uh, for the first time. I didn't bring my camera. I just just wanted to bird. Mm -hmm. And I was in the forest, and I just I heard this thing. And, and you know how the vocalization begins. It's something that starts very slow and somewhat discreet, especially at a distance. It's just like, oh, uh -huh. oh, <laughs> they're just these kind of honking notes. And well, well, I think we'll play this as our natural sound at the end of the podcast so that you can hear it for yourself. But it basically starts as something that's you almost tune out unless you know what it is. And then mm. over the course of like two minutes, it builds up into this insane cackling maniacal crescendo that's just i think it's one of the greatest bird vocalizations in the world so it was one of these moments where i heard this thing and then i was just like what the hell is that i had it was such a bizarre <laughs> bizarre sound and then on that trip i never managed to track them down um so a few years later did you form, figure out what it was then? i did i did yeah i, I did right. have a, a playlist of vocalizations and you know i i sort of did a little detective work and that well that's probably right. a hornbill and sure enough it's it's helmeted yeah. but sometimes just having no expectations and no no idea makes for quite an experience um yeah so yeah i, I tracked it down a few years later in borneo uh, just just a fabulous bird just like a pterodactyl so big i mean 
It's so unique. I mean, it's not. It's nothing like the other hornbills. It's totally incredible. unlike any other hornbill. Yeah, the the weird tail rackets and the yeah the bare face and the, it's got this weird little stumpy short yellow bill too. It, it's just mm. got a bizarre structure. I mean, you can understand why it must eat different fruits than than typical hornbills uh-huh. because it's just built so differently. Yeah. It, it does not have that you know, toucan-esque, typical hornbill, like long curved bill at all. It's got this short, sharp bill. It's, uh... So, and, and just just the thought of it going extinct, it, it's just it yeah, it's, almost... It's heartbreaking, brings really. brings me to tears. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. To, to think that birders in 50 years, 100 years, might not be able to see this incredibly unique bird, I just find Oof. incredibly sad. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's probably, what, among the 20 most endangered birds in the world in terms of it really could yeah. go extinct within a very short time. I mean, a few years, yeah. it's huge. It's incredibly loud and distinctive vocally. They nest in tree cavities, often in big trees, so it's a pretty easy kind of nest to find. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I guess people penetrate even deep, deep into the wilderness in places like Borneo and, and seek these out because they're so valuable. Um, particularly in China, I, I know there are there are conservation efforts afoot. I think um, I think BirdLife International has come up with an action plan, and and let's really hope that some of these conservation programs then um, show some fruition as well. But um, it's indeed it's be extremely sad. Yeah, if that goes, if that disappears. I saw a headline just quite recently that a, a pretty big new population had been discovered in some remote part of uh, Kalimantan, which is the Indonesian part of Borneo. So that was that was promising. But it's a tricky one to conserve, you know, because it relies on just vast, vast areas of fairly pristine forest. And then you also have mm-hmm. to have enough protection there to keep poachers out, which is hard to do yeah. because the nature of those places is they're they're remote and how do you how do you patrol hundreds of square miles of of lowland rainforest yeah. and, the, and the park guards are poorly paid and yeah there's, there's so I mean, many I th- issues i think you, you have to get rid of the demand in china and wherever mm-hmm. else i don't know if it's exclusively china but that seems to me like probably the only uh the only way forward with something like this i mean i, I know there was a big campaign in china recently with yao ming who's, who's just a huge hero in china nba basketball player against wildlife trade and I thought that was that was fantastic. He's done amazing work. And that's what's going to do it, is, is high-profile Chinese people doing campaigns like that. I think he did a big campaign to, to stop shark fin soup, which is okay. incredibly wasteful. And they say just his efforts alone reduced the demand by 25%. Wow, that's great. Which is just incredible. And he's also started doing stuff on rhino horns and other stuff. So whether he's... Uh, maybe we should send him an email. <laughs> <laughs> Next up. Helmeted hornbill. Helmeted hornbill. But that's, that's going to um, be what it takes. You know, you can understand the way these things developed historically. You know, there would have been a, this trickle of trade out of Indonesia and out of Sundaland up into China. There would have been so much forest in those days. And people had relatively primitive weapons. And, you know, just what was involved in, in killing a hornbill and taking its cask was, it was very difficult to do. So 500 years ago, you can kind of imagine how this how this worked, why there was some kind of status in having the thing, and also why it was probably happening at a sustainable 
level. But you, you know, with the number of people in Indonesia now, the declining forest, and then the amount of demand in China, it's all just become incredibly unsustainable. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, if you can just stop these things from being status symbols or, you know, make them basically uncool rather than cool, I think that's probably the only solution. One of the nice things in Asia is that bird photography, especially birding to a certain extent, but bird photography has really taken off. Absolutely. Um, it's huge in China and, now. And this is China, Thailand, Taiwan, Singapore. Just about everywhere, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what, you know, having people passionate about wildlife, about wildlife photography in these countries, because you need that internal pressure. You know, they, these often these countries are not going to respond from outside pressure. You need that inside momentum to, to really um, make a difference. Yep. They, people don't really want some wealthy foreigners coming in, looking at something and telling them, you should preserve this. That just doesn't work well. But right, you get tens or hundreds of thousands of Asian bird photographers who really value these things. That's definitely the way forwards. I hope, you know, more and more of that happens in Africa. I think we desperately need that. Wow, cool. That was... uh, Great. I guess I I hadn't heard any of those stories, really. I, uh, I remember that you saw the helmeted hornbill, but I hadn't heard the full story, so... Great. Good to finish up your, your top 10. Um, thanks for sharing the stories. What are we going to do next week? Are we going to change it up again? Next week, I think we should finish my top 10 probably. And then okay. after that, yep. maybe we'll, we're thinking about doing one about life in Thailand since Charlie lives in Thailand and mm-hmm. life in Madagascar since I live in Madagascar. So but next week, Ken's top three lifetime bird sightings. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> it'll be fun so thanks to everybody for listening as always it's been a pleasure to chat with charlie and this week we will leave you with the helmeted hornbill that uh, would be a very appropriate one it's a long call uh it's over a minute and a half long but wait for the big finish it's it's well worth it <laughs> it's a fantastic uh, natural sound and we'll catch you next week see you next week
And this recording is by John V. Moore.